This is the APS China Quarterly, April 2021. Talk China Webinar Hard Truths for 2021 by Wang Kakhoi. CIO and founder Wang Kakhoi shared his 2021 outlook in January's Talk China Webinar. The following are his responses to questions asked by investors. What is the most important issue among the 10 that you listed in your 2021 Outlook piece? The one that would have the greatest investment implications would be the possibility of China's GDP becoming the world's largest by 2025. If this were to take place, this will be an epical event for China. The equation is simple. Over the next five years, can China produce USD 5 trillion more economic output than the US by growing 2.5% faster every year, plus an annual currency appreciation of 5%? This will be a quote, back to the future 1625 scenario, when China accounted for 29% of world GDP. With COVID 19 and other developments, this event may happen sooner rather than later. Long term investors would need to start thinking about the profound impact this will have for the world. Is it too early to start positioning your portfolios for this scenario? We have already started to position ourselves in companies that will benefit from this trend. For instance, we like technology companies that will succeed in the next 5 to 10 years as China needs to become self reliant. Despite acknowledging it will be a tough road ahead in the short term, the semiconductor industry, for instance, currently needs equipment that mostly comes from the West. The government, therefore, will need to foster rapid development in the semi equipment arena. Another area that will continue to benefit is consumption, as the population's disposable income continues to rise. Hence, we like areas such as Baiju, duty free, and premium household goods. What's the situation with COVID 19 in China and its investment implication? It is important to listen to the warnings of the scientists and virologists. They are still learning about the virus, which is still mutating. However, the markets seem to think we are close to overcoming the pathogen. Specific to China, yes, the country has done well in suppressing the coronavirus, but the healthcare scientists are still paranoid about it. And we are still seeing new outbreaks there and elsewhere. This coronavirus is highly contagious, and without draconian measures, the virus will take control of the economy. We still have lockdowns in many countries, including parts of Asia. This is a harbinger of what to expect for much of this year. Vaccines notwithstanding, COVID 19 will continue to be a drag for many countries this year. For China, The risks are more external versus internal. The supply disruption is less of a worry now compared with external demand disruption. Yes, we can place hope on the vaccines, but no country will be safe until every country is safe. As investors, we want to focus more on what the scientists say more than the economists. What has been China's stimulus response to the pandemic? 
Nine to ten months ago, investors expected an encore of 2008's CNY 4.2 trillion stimulus package out of China, but nothing came close. Yes, Beijing cut some taxes, provided some relief to companies, persuaded SOEs to keep their employees, and expedited some infrastructure projects, but the total amount of stimulus was small compared to 2008. On the monetary front. Interest rates have actually been guided to go up. Last April, an official involved in internal PPOC policy discussions said, quote, "The PPOC will take a step-by-step approach and reserve some ammunition." Unquote. Perhaps cognizant that the fight against COVID-19 may well be a multi-year effort, the central bank had signaled to the market that they will not use up all their fiscal and monetary ammunition in one go. As a result, the yuan should be on a long-term upward trend versus the U.S. dollar due to China's comparatively restrained balance sheet growth. What was the motivation behind China's move against Alibaba? Beijing is not targeting any individual or company. They want healthy development of the entire tech sector. We need to split this topic into fintech and e-commerce. As the business dynamics are different, as are the regulatory responses. First, in fintech, why was Ant Financial's IPO pulled in the eleventh hour? Yes, Jack Ma made some controversial comments in a speech at the Bund Finance Summit, but the regulators' concerns arise from two big issues. One is the way digital consumer loans are issued, as it poses systematic risk across the system. They act as interim lender and investment banker, very much like commercial and investment banks during the U.S. subprime crisis. The real lenders are the regional banks, mutual funds, and smaller institutions who have no capability to assess the asset-backed securities they are buying. One ABS has hundreds of thousands of disparate buyers. Ant Group's outstanding loans stood at USD 260 billion as of June last year, and the total industry is estimated to total USD 1.2 trillion. FinTech companies themselves have very little of their own capital at risk in these loans, but instead earn fat fees as the investment bank. They are driven to grow, but ignore the resulting increase in systemic risk. The second concern is the usurious 20 to 40 percent per annum interest rates charged to young Chinese or blue-collar workers. Chinese consumers have the equivalent of USD 1.31 trillion in short-term loans outstanding, with a significant share of this debt extended based on risk assessments made primarily by fintech groups. To make things worse. Many fintech companies have resorted to unethical commercials to attract the less educated and younger Chinese to borrow. These are the concerns regulators have on fintech. The concern on e-commerce is anti-competitive behavior, consumer data pricing abuses, wash sales, misleading advertisements, and obsession with top-line growth over innovation. In China. Netizens have expressed their anger towards some of these companies. The backlash from the public, to a large extent, has forced regulators to act before things worsen. 
e-commerce players up to now have been lightly regulated. Beijing has made their decision that if they do not act now, we will get a repeat of the P2P fiasco in 2019. In a short period of time, investors lost CNY $800 billion, or more than half of all P2P loans issued. The days of fintech and e-commerce companies doing whatever they like are over. Many of these companies will be entering into a long winter season. You mentioned you see a bit of an e-commerce bubble. What other parts of the market look overvalued to you? Some of the technology companies look overvalued, but we are also bullish in some of these areas. Similar to other countries, the majority of China's technology companies will inevitably fail, but the ones that succeed will be 10 to 50 baggers. However, over the past year or two, Almost every technology company's share prices seem to have gone crazy. We are cautious and will be selective on picking the long-term winners. In addition, the IPO market in China, as well as other countries, are seeing doubling share prices on the first day despite lofty offering prices. This is another sign of pockets of excess we are seeing in the markets. If you compare the high-tech sector in a global context, are Chinese companies still expensive? One needs to be discerning between the majority which will be losers versus the few that will win. For emerging tech companies that could be successful, you should not be looking at P-E ratios. If you need another 3 to 5 years to catch up in terms of technological capability, P-E is not a good ratio. If the company were to succeed, its earnings in 5 to 10 years could be many multiples of what it is today. You need to look at the R&D investment and access to capital. Scale of its home market is also important, which is an area where China has an advantage. Lastly, government support is crucial. If you look at TSMC or Samsung, these companies received huge government support in the early years. Similarly, when you look at Chinese technology companies, you must take into account Beijing's attitude towards that particular industry segment. I know you have favored the semiconductor sector and SMIC. Can you give us an update here? SMIC is a key cog for the success of the entire China's tech strategy. If you do not succeed here, you cannot succeed in artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, and other areas. Over the last two years, SMIC has received support not just from Beijing, but also from other tech companies like Huawei. Huawei previously favored TSMC, which had better technology, but the company pivoted support towards SMIC even before the sanctions were fully enacted. Today, most of the domestic technology industry wants and needs SMIC to succeed. The company is three to five years behind TSMC, but we think this gap will close over time. How do valuations currently look between H shares, A shares, and ADRs? H shares in general are the cheapest as they have been neglected by both domestic and global investors. Many ADRs we have analyzed suggest they are not well understood by investors and are thus grossly overvalued. 
I recently spoke to an investor about a company with a USD 200 billion market capitalization, but this investor cannot explain how this loss-making company can generate a profit in the future. A shares are mixed as some offer good value, but there are pockets of excess that we also see in some other global markets today. How do you expect US-China relations to play out under Biden? Firstly, I think it is wrong to think Trump was the only cause or key troublemaker in the strained relations. I say this because Washington had publicly stated many times that China is their major strategic competitor, even before President Trump was elected. Anthony Blinken is now saying the same thing. Therefore, I think post-Trump Sino-US relations will remain tense. The substance will not change, but I think the overall tone will be dialed down. Under Biden, there may be areas of cooperation and areas of mutual interest where they would work together if they could. Biden had previously said positive things about Xi and China when he was vice president, but the political environment today is different. We should not be too optimistic on US-China and expect Gado to arrive. What are the implications of the U.S. Executive Order 13959? If the U.S. were to take this action 15 years ago, the effect on China and its companies would be tremendous as they needed foreign capital back then. Today, the impact on companies will be limited as there is ample capital within China. For example, News of the delisting of China Mobile from the U.S. exchange and its removal from the various indices led to a two-day sell-off, but the stock quickly rebounded due to southbound buying in the Hong Kong-listed shares as the fundamentals of the company remains strong. The company is a cash cow and does not need investor capital to grow. Washington is rather late on this front. It seems China's response to U.S. has been muted. Why? There has been a split of views in Beijing. President Xi, who is a strong personality, thought China should respond in a tit-for-tat fashion. He used the term, quote, second long march, which indicated he was prepared to have a long trade war and conflict with the U.S. But there were moderates like Li Keqiang, Wang Yang, and Wang Qishan, who convinced him to back down. China then took a more moderate approach, as China is still a beneficiary of the global trade system. In the last few months, Beijing came to the conclusion that they would not negotiate with Trump before the election. There were also pragmatists in Beijing who see that it is not Trump or Biden who matter but rather Washington inherently viewing China as a threat to its global dominance. China has no intention to be an assertive geopolitical power. Most Chinese want a better quality of life, after being a poor nation for 200 years. Are they really interested in being a global hegemon? We do not believe this is their intent today. With the signing of the China-Euro Investment Agreement, how likely can Biden work together with the EU to counter China? The European Union was asked by Washington to delay the signing of the treaty. The EU, however, decided for their own regional interests they should sign the treaty before Biden's inauguration.
Trump had proven to the Europeans that the U.S. can be unreliable, and China will increasingly be important for them. For Germany, as an example, China is now its largest trade partner. Europe would like to work with both the U.S. and China. There was a lot of worry that the U.S. would form a coalition with the EU and Japan against China three to six months ago. The signing of this China-EU agreement is somewhat a sign of easing on this front. How relevant is growth versus value in China? Because China is still growing 5 to 6% per annum, you want to invest in growth companies in China. In APS, we call this structural alpha and want 70 to 80% of our book to be in companies that ride long-term economic, policy, or industry tailwinds. That said, one should not think that because a company's P.E. multiple is high, it is a growth stock. Sometimes a high P.E. stock can be a value stock if growth is sufficiently high. We almost never automatically view a stock that has a 5x P.E. as a value stock as it can be overvalued, while a 50x P.E. company can be cheap. The P.E. multiple often tells you nothing about value, as one year's earnings amount to about 5% or less of the intrinsic value of a company. Where do you think China's deleveraging effort is headed towards? Are we going to see more defaults? I think the technocrats in Beijing plan for the long term. The last 10 to 20 years have seen excesses that have been built where small to medium-sized companies have levered themselves to the hilt. Surprisingly, during such a critical time, Beijing slammed the brakes and forced these companies to deleverage. They knew there would be pain, but they must have concluded that for the sector and economy, it is the right thing to do. I think that long-term fundamentals have actually improved in China through the COVID-19 period. We are seeing this reflected in the markets by domestic and foreign investors alike. When you talk about growth, how do you view data quality and reliability, or what alternative metrics do you look at? With social media, we are never sure whether what is said by company management or government leaders are truth or lies. Even audited numbers may not be what they seem. We often say a dollar of reported earnings is often not a dollar. Therefore, we need to look behind the numbers to verify the authenticity. When we look at financial reports, we study the fine print. The auditors provide cover for themselves in the fine print. In APS, we call this function the, quote, Sherlock Holmes hat in our four alpha hats investment process. We have now institutionalized this function by hiring two forensic accounting analysts to do this job. We have also hired an investigative analyst to talk to industry contacts and verify what is said by management as well as conduct background checks on key personnel. Wong Kakoi is the founder and CIO of APS Asset Management. He has 40 years of investment experience, including CIO at CityTrust Japan, Senior PM at Citibank Hong Kong, and Senior Investment Officer at GIC. He was the recipient of the prestigious Monbushu Scholarship in Japan and graduated with a Bachelor of Commerce Honors degree from the Hitu Subashi University, 1981. 
Mr. Wong also completed the Investment Appraisal and Management Program at Harvard University, 1990.